This is the Partnership for the Arts Talk Show, where we talk art. Welcome to Where We Talk Art. This is your host, Victor Gartner. Today, I am in far northern Maine, in a lakeside log cabin, the home of Brenda and Alan Jepson. Brenda produces videos which reflect the life, culture, history, and beauty of northern Maine. Brenda Jepson and I will begin our talk after a brief message. This is Partnership for the Arts. Come join us as we explore the world of art. You can find us on our Facebook page at Partnership for the Arts Group Talk Show. Or you can find us on our new website at pftatalkshow.org. PFTA Talk Show is recorded at the Visual Arts Center in Punta Gorda, Florida. Brenda, welcome to Where We Talk Art. Well, thank you. Delighted to be here. Yeah, I'm delighted to be here in your beautiful log cabin. I really like it. This, this is a lovely home. Well, thanks. It was built by an old Swede, Lawrence Gunnarsson, and, uh, in 1951. And they had to bring the logs across the lake on the ice in winter to build it because there was no road to this lot in mm. those days. Wow, that's interesting. And do you know how they dragged the logs over? Like, was it by horse or by tractor? It was in a truck. In a truck. But the ice must have been pretty thick. It gets about three feet thick in winter, so it must have been very thick when they did it. I would think so. Yes, I remember the first time I I dug a hole in the ice up here in the north. I wanted to get some water uh, because the water was shut off in the camp. So I went out about, you know, like 30 feet with a big metal bar and I'm breaking the ice, breaking the ice, breaking the ice. And finally, I, I hit gravel. <laughs> no water. <laughs> so I go back in and I say, I didn't hit the water. And they say, yeah, well, you, you didn't dig the hole far enough. Go out another hundred feet. Oh, <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> the things you have to learn. That's yeah. right. All right. So you started a video production company that focuses on telling stories about uh, Maine. And what is it about Maine that motivates you to make you want to do these documentaries? Well, Maine is just a fascinating place, both culturally, I think, and in terms of its natural beauty. You can travel to different parts of the state and see quite varied landscapes, That's you true. know, from mountains to lakes to seaside. Um, it's a very beautiful state. It, that's why we call it vacation land. So many people come here in summer for that beauty. It is gorgeous. Um, it is gorgeous, but the people are fascinating, and they have a fascinating history. So being interested in history, it's natural for me to want to be here. And it's my home native state. I grew up here. Um, although right after university, I went to England to live when I was 22, and I was there 14 years. But the whole time I kept thinking, oh, I'd love to go back to Maine and make films for Maine PBS. Mm. So that's what I eventually did. You said that you were born here. Mm-hmm. So up here in the northern part of the state? No, I'm from central Maine. And funnily enough, when I got back from England, going from 13 million neighbors, I ended up meeting Alan, and we got married and moved up here. And my friends in southern Maine said, what are you doing, burying yourself in some potato field up in <laughs> Maine? Why would you want to live up there? There's, there's nothing there. But um, we soon found that it was as all kinds of fascinating uh cultures and history, so it's by no means a barren place for filmmakers. Yeah. Well, going back to what you said about finishing uh, college, 
I know you went to University of Maine in Orinoa and you, you majored in journalism. So I can see that there's a connection between journalism and doing documentaries. I mean, to me, that's a natural transition. But you learned to do documentaries when you went to England. Yes, that's right. I got a job over there editing a small national newspaper, and I was flying all over the over the UK. But as much as I loved writing, the pictures you put in a newspaper story don't move. The people right. don't talk. Right. They're little quotes. So I thought to myself, it would be so much fun to learn filmmaking. So I went to Oxford Film Workshops and did a course there. And then I got a job uh, working under a BBC producer-director uh, making a monthly news show. And that's really how I learned to do filmmaking. I learned under a BBC producer-director who was a wonderful man, Alan Scales. And uh, after that, I set up my own film company in London, and that was great fun. But like I said, I always missed Maine. When when you set up your own company, how long had you been already in the business of, of producing or, or working on creating um, this, this monthly news stuff? Like how much experience did you have under your belt? Four years. That was it. And then I had my film company for four years. And I did documentaries, but I also did some dramas that were really fun. No kidding. Um, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, I hired a, a British Academy Award-winning director and worked with him and wonderful scriptwriters. And I haven't done drama since I got back to Maine. And, I, you know, there's a part of me that would love to do drama. Mm. And there are so many fascinating stories here, too, that could be dramatized. So I don't know if that's something I'll do, but it's sort of in the back of my mind. That's interesting. You... You and Alan, your husband, you could become the next Kevin Browner and, and Emma Thompson and, you know, create these, <laughs> <laughs> these films of armies crashing into each other. <laughs> so when after you did that for a while, then you decided you miss home. Oh, yes. I was even making films for Maine PBS while I was in England, the first film I ever made called The Copper Kettle, was shot in 1983, almost 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was shot in Sweden. And then I made another film, A Main Chance for Scotland, uh, about a Maine lumberman who went to Scotland and helped them with their wood product industry. It was quite an interesting film about this man. And then I was going to shoot another film. I did shoot it, called Homecoming, another film in Sweden. Mm -hmm. And then I had the film all shot, and I thought, I can edit this film just as easily at a small cottage I had on the coast of Maine as I can sitting here in London, right. which is also known as the Big Smoke. We call New York the mm -hmm. Big Apple, London is the Big Smoke. And I just thought, I really want to do different types of films. So I wound up my company, which was very sad because I had employees who'd worked for me for the four years we'd been going. Um, but I thought, this I, this isn't what I want to do. I want to make films in Maine, about Maine, about Maine people. Um, and so I came back, and while I was working on that film, I was invited up to Maine Swedish Colony up here in northern Maine to give a talk about the film. It was at the parsonage of the Swedish Lutheran Church, and it was there that I, that I met Alan. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. It was so funny because I arrived at this smorgasbord, and I had an old... Uh, 78 Datsun at the time, and my parents <laughs> said to me, you are not going all the way up there in January in a blizzard. You'll be stuck in a snowbank. We'll never find you again. 
we are taking you to northern Maine in our van. So I had to meet them in Bangor at my uncle's house, and uh, I got in the van, and I heard this funny noise in the back. They brought their giant dog with them. And I said, I didn't arrange for that and to bring a dog to the hotel. And my father said, he's just a little dog. I'm like, yeah, right. So <laughs> we managed to get into the hotel, and they said, if the dog makes any noises, we'll have to ask all of you to leave. And I oh, said, we'll my. all end up in the snow bank, and they won't find us till spring. won't just be me. <laughs> <laughs> so I, we went to the smorgasbord, and it was so old-fashioned because all the women were sitting in one room, and all the men were in the next room. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is so old-fashioned. You know, I just arrived from yes. London. I couldn't imagine the segregation somehow. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go sit with the men. So I did. I went and sat by this very handsome Swedish man, and I'm of Swedish descent, too. And uh, we were having a wonderful chat. We'd both been to Humane. We both loved to cross-country ski. We both loved to cook. Mm. And then they said, come and talk about your film. And I said, what film? I'm talking to this wonderful man. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the rest is history. And Alan says, I went out for a smorgasbord and came home with a wife. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Not too many people can say that, I'm sure. <laughs> Well, that's an interesting story. Now, when you said you went to a Swedish colony, was was it up here like in New Sweden or this Stockholm? Is, this is Maine Swedish colony. It's made. It's comprised of New Sweden. That right. was the first town. Stockholm, Westmanland, Jämtland. There's all these little communities and towns that make up what's called Maine Swedish colony. And of course, it was I founded see. in in 1870. William Woodry Thomas went to Sweden and recruited from all 51 provinces, brought them here. And this became a Swedish colony. It still is today. You'll hear Swedish spoken here. And there's incredibly fascinating history and culture here, which is what I mean about this is not a barren wasteland for culture. Right. There's a lot of it here. And in the valley to the north, there are the French, whose ancestors came in the 1640s. So right. it's a fascinating place for a filmmaker. All right. So with these folks that were kind of recruited to come here, what was... What was the attraction? Why did they say, yes, I'll go? <laughs> well, it was the state of Maine. This is the only uh, place in the in the country that was, this. Sweden was founded by an active state legislature. During the Civil War, Maine farmers' sons went into the war, mm -hmm. saw beautiful fertile land elsewhere, and yeah. thought, why are we tilling this rocky soil in northern Maine with the freezing weather? We're going to go west, young man. So when they go back from the Civil War, they took off. This was a big worry for the state of Maine. Who would plant the potatoes now? Right. Who would be willing to come to this cold climate? Right. And so William Woodry Thomas of Freeport had been ambassador to Sweden under Abraham Lincoln, and he knew the Swedish people and their language. So the state of Maine sent him over to round up these Swedes and invited them to come. And they were each to get 100 acres of land and a little log cabin built for them. Except, hmm. well, the statement was a little slow getting cabins built. So the 51 who came in the first group, they landing July 23rd in 1870, there were two cabins built. And all the men were in one and the women and children were in the other. Oh, my. Yeah. They tried to build more, but that winter was rough and almost half of them died from flu. It was a rough, rough winter. But nevertheless, the next year... More Swedes came, including my husband's family. And so wave after wave were coming um, because of the population boom in Sweden. They had wonderful vaccination program, which okay. meant population boom. So they had 
little land to share out in families, and so they were coming here, and that's what happened. That's very interesting. Yes. Well, you, when you came back, didn't didn't just um, do filming and documentaries. You were also uh, a teacher. And you had a program at the Caribou, was it middle school or high school? It was the high school in the Votec Center. All right. And that, and that was? Viking Video Productions. Viking Video Productions. All right. <laughs> That's a school mascot, the Vikings. It is. That's right, the Caribou Vikings. I forgot about that. All right. So uh, tell us about that program. Oh, that was a wonderful experience. I taught for 15 years, and uh, I just had a blast with the students. We made all kinds of fascinating films. A lot Such of as? Well, um, the first film we made was Stan's A Jewel in the Crown of Maine. Which I've was, seen that video, yes. Oh, yes, that was a hoot. Because it was this old, dilapidated, ramshackle little grocery store cum diner on the side of Madawaska Lake. And, of course, the students loved coming every day to film there. And mm-hmm. we captured it in all seasons. Oh. And the owner was quite eccentric, Stan Thomas. Yes. He said he never married because he was married to the store. And I he, bet he was. He was. And he lived in the store, and so did his dad. And you couldn't believe from looking at it. Uh, some people arrived there and thought, this place has been closed for years. It's not open. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a little run down, yeah. 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 My cousin from Sweden was nervous about going in. She thought the porch roof might collapse on her as she was going in the door. But Stan himself was kind of a gruff-looking man, you know, stocky. Yes. Big beard. Oh, yes. Yeah. And but the kids the loved sweet him. A yes. sweet soul. And the kids loved him. And we worked really, really hard every day we came to film. But at the end, the last day, he said, the kids like a stand special. So we made them all a stand special. So we had a blast. And, and the kids won the uh, the um, international uh, Maine International Film Festival Award that year. So it was not just a fun experience, but it actually won an award. And it was shown on Maine PBS. So. That was great fun. No kidding. I mean, maybe PBS. So this this award that you won, who who were you who were you competing against? Well, there were other schools in the state, and uh, they had film production classes too. Mm-hmm. And so the kids, it was something that the Maine International Film Festival did. It was like a youth award. Okay. So that was the award that they won. But another time, we made a film called "Don't Fence Me In." And that was about um, Holton, Maine, in Southern Rustic. During World War II, we had 4,000 German prisoners of war being held there. Um, That's quite a few. Oh, yeah. Well, they were picked up, um, you know, on the coast of France, and Britain was too full and didn't have enough food to feed their own people, let alone all these prisoners of war. So under the Geneva Convention, they had to sign a release to be allowed to be shipped to USA to be prisoners of war here. Hmm. Because, of course, those U-boats were bombing ships going back and forth, and the Germans might have bombed their own prisoners of war. And the prisoners of war had to agree that they would take the risk of going. So they got over here. They came to Boston and came by train up to Holton, Maine. But 60 years after they they were released and sent back after the war was ended, they returned to northern Maine. They were invited back for a reunion with their former captors. Hmm. And it was incredible because these four Germans came. Luckily, I had ta- learned German at UMaine, so I was able to communicate with the ones who couldn't speak such good English, but most of them, three out of four, spoke very good English. 
Uh, and my students had a blast meeting these people, you know, who were in the war. That's very interesting. They said they learned more about World War II from working on the film that year than they did in their U.S. history class. So that was pretty good. That is very good. Yeah. I had a very good friend, Ray Minio. He lived a, a block up from where I grew up on Long Island, New York. And his father was an Italian prisoner of war. Really? And he, and he was kept in a POW camp somewhere in the Catskills, not too far oh, wow. above uh, the city of, of New York. And he said that the first day they, they got there, um, they were told it was time to go to the dining room for, for, their, for their meal. Well, they weren't expecting a dining room. They were just expecting like a military-type mess hall with benches or whatever. They peek in and they see these tables with linen, flowers in the vase, <laughs> all the silverware set out. They go, they're whispering to each other, this can't be the room. We're in the wrong place. We're going to be in big trouble. What should we do? Should we leave? Should we stay? And so somebody came by and said, what are you waiting for? Go sit down. Get a table. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. It was for them. They were absolutely shocked. Wow. Well, when the Germans got off the train in Holton, they were in rough shape. Some were mm -hmm. injured from the war. They hadn't really had their wounds treated yet. Oh, but the goodness. first thing was to get them cleaned up. So they said, okay, you need to go in and have these showers. Well, they thought they were going to be gassed. Mm -hmm. They really thought they were going to be going into gas chambers. Yes. And they had explained to them, no, 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 you, we want you to wash, get cleaned up. But they became good friends with some of the local families because they were put to work picking potatoes cutting wood in the forest uh, for firewood. They were yes. kept busy, but they were very well treated, and they loved it. They said it was the best place to spend the war. <laughs> ah, did any of them stay? They weren't allowed. Oh. They weren't allowed. And one got home to his hometown, and he tried to find his parents' house, and he had an awful time finding it. It was so much had been bombed, he couldn't even figure out which street he was in. And an old man approached him. And he said to the old man, I'm looking for the house of the Richters. Can you please tell me the Richters, where they are living? And he didn't recognize the old man. The old man was his father. Oh, my goodness. He said, Rudy, is that you? You're home from... Yes, father, is that you? They couldn't believe they recognized each other. The chances of that. Yeah. Oh, that The is movie's amazing. incredible because it has all these amazing stories in it. Yes. including a little love affair between one prisoner and a local county girl. Well, we're going to have to wait on that because we are going to take a very short break. So um, we will do that break and be back in just a moment. So listeners, please don't go anywhere. We're going to be right back. This is Chris Morton, musician and owner of KMH Music Shop in Presque Isle, Maine, and I listen to Where We Talk Art. We are back and talking to Brenda Jepson, who produces documentaries about the life, culture, people, and places in northern Maine. And then she also taught the production class in the high school of Caribou, Maine, and we were just talking about that, and then... Brenda gave us a little hint of a story of a love affair between a POW and a local gal. Yes, that's right. One of the stories we heard as we were working on our film, Don't Fence Me In, was of a young girl, a farmer's daughter, who 
kept seeing these prisoners of war arriving each day mm-hmm. to pick potatoes. And of course, these some of these young men were very young. They had been in Hitler youth. Yes. And of course, Hitler was running out of able-bodied men in their 20s, even 18-year-olds. So now he's recruiting Hitler youth. One boy celebrated his 17th birthday at Camp Holton, so he arrived at the age of 16. So these were young guys. So this farmer's daughter quite fancied one of these boys. Mm-hmm. and she would bring him a treat in the fields and everything. She was really noticing him. And then she hatched this crazy plan. She thought to herself, maybe we can run away together. But where would they go? She had no vehicle and neither did he. So she hatched this plan that they would camp out in a potato house. Uh, <laughs> and she gathered everything needed oh to go in the potato house and escape and live there. And she brought, she got everything put in the potato house, everything they would need, including food and bedding, the whole lot. And so she lured him away from the potato field one day. And, of course, they knew he was missing, but they didn't really know where to find him. He could have escaped to the woods or they weren't sure. So they're now living in the potato house. And after three days, the young German POW turned himself in. (laughs) Exhausted. He'd had enough, and that was how it ended. <laughs> oh, that is that is sweet. So, getting getting back to my my friend uh, Ray Minio's father, he he was visited by a, a young woman yes. from the area, and they they just spoke to each other through the fence. Yeah. Right. And uh, I'm not sure how it happened, but uh, eventually he was released. He stayed. Wow. In the area, they got married, and they raised two boys. One of them, the oldest one, Ray, so became a very good friend. And uh, he and I and, and another person in, in our neighborhood formed a band, a garage band. And oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. We were, we were good friends for many, many, many years. It's, it's hard to know how many folks came to America either as a POW or... Or, or even a penal colony like Georgia was a penal colony. Yeah. They might have come that way. Mm-hmm. But we did ask these Germans, did they ever wish they could stay? And they were told it wasn't allowed. And so oh. they all had to go back. And mm-hmm. one of them, uh, Gerhard Klein, who is from Köln, he was so surprised because as the ship was approaching what he thought would be Frankfurt, mm-hmm. Um, no, sorry, Bremerhaven, Bremen, he um, thought, this doesn't look like the scenery I was expecting at all. And then they told him aboard the ship, well, actually, you're approaching Scotland. Witness Scotland. And that was where he was held, because after the war, the English demanded reparations, and part of the reparations was for the prisoners of war, Germans, to come to Britain to do war reparations, to literally rebuild buildings and all this. And he just cried and sobbed because he couldn't believe that he couldn't go home right. after all he'd been through. Sure, He had to work. I think he did a couple of years of reparation work, and he said the prisoner of war camp in Holton was like a luxury palace compared to the barracks they had them in mm. in England. They were not really 
happy or friendly toward them after being bombed so much by the Germans. Yes. But uh, Rudi Richter, somehow, he got on a different boat, and he did go right back to Germany. And that's okay. when he bumped into his dad in the street, and they mm-hmm. didn't really know each other at first. Each one had a different story, and a fascinating one at that. So. Yes. The other day, I watched one of your videos, and it was about the Acadian traditions. Acadian traditions, preserving Acadian ways in the St. John Valley. Well, I'm sure that people outside of northern Maine have no idea what an Acadian is or what Acadia itself is. So could you tell us about this? Yes, that's more fascinating history that really does start here in Maine. Um, In 1604, uh, noblemen decided that they wanted to come to the New World and start settlements. So they chose St. Croix Island, just off the coast of Maine. Mm -hmm. And unlike the British, who would settle a few years later in 1607 at Popham in southern Maine, the noblemen who wanted these settlements built came with the settlers. And so when these settlers arrived at this island off the coast of Maine in 1604, they arrived in ships and they had prefabricated houses from France with leaded glass windows. They brought lovely stemmed wine glasses and they built this whole community, a prefabricated one. They had a church. They even had both a Catholic priest and a Protestant minister mm-hmm. because they wanted to minister to both groups on the island. But again, kind of like those Swedes in northern Maine who arrived, these French were so terrified of the natives, that's why they settled on the island. And because they were on the island, it limited the food they could get, and so mm-hmm. half the men died of scurvy that winter, including the Catholic priest and the Protestant minister, who had been arguing quite a bit. So they buried them side by side so they could argue religion for the rest of time. (laughs) All right. Uh, So anyway, these were the, really the Acadian, original Acadians. So by now they realize they can't live on this island. And they do meet the natives who turn out to be very friendly and helpful to them. So they move on to uh, Port Royal in Nova Scotia and they start a settlement there. And Samuel Argyll from Virginia, a British uh, guy, comes up and torches this community they built. So now they go to Grand Pre, which is another part of Nova Scotia. They build a settlement, and it's thriving. In the 1640s, the families come from France, not just these male settlers, mm-hmm. but their families and all these others. So they come, they're in Grand Pre, and they're building a beautiful community. It's an, an idyllic one. It's almost totally self-sufficient. Yeah. And very advanced. They have a diking system they use to reclaim lands below the low tide mark so they can have beautiful fertile soil. So much so that the British in the colonies back here in New England say, oh, yes, fertile farmlands, we'd like that. And so they get permission from the Crown, uh, King George III at the time, to remove the Acadians from their beloved Acadie, Acadia, and they put them aboard 19 ships, and they separate the men from the women and the children, and they ship them off to all different parts of the world. Some go to England to prison of war camps. Some are dropped off all along the eastern seaboard as far as Georgia. Some eventually will end up in um, Louisiana, 
because the Cajuns are Acadian. That's a corruption of yes. Acadian. But some of them came to Fredericton in Nova, uh, up in uh, New Brunswick, mm-hmm. and they made a second settlement. And they were very happily living there from 1755. But when the Revolutionary War broke out, now all of a sudden, the loyalists who don't want to side with the rebels here in New England have to flee somewhere. So they go up to New Brunswick, and once again, the Acadians are thrown off their lands. The New England settlers who are loyalists get their land. So now the Acadians go up the St. John River, determined to go so far they will never be found by the British ever again to be thrown out. So they settle in the St. John Valley. So that's why we have these folks here. They're originally coming in the 1640s, but they're here now. And in Frenchville, Maine, just north of here, 97% of the people living there still speak French. So they really keep their culture, their history, their ethnic foods, their traditions in many ways. And that's how this film was made, Acadian Traditions. When I was living up here a few decades ago, and the first time I went to a Van Buren and Fort Kent, and I stopped in like a gas station or a convenience store, I, I was greeted in French, yeah. just automatically. Mm-hmm. And, and that very much surprised me. Yeah. And also the number of people who have lived here all of their lives, but had a very distinct and similar type of French accent. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had a friend from Paris who came to visit. And when she was listening to their French, she found it. Um, bewildering, amusing, and quite impressive because they're speaking French as their ancestors did in the 1640s. They haven't been in France to learn all the new words. Mm-hmm. In fact, of course, in French, voiture would be a car, but they were calling it instead chariot. chariot. So they call their car a chariot instead of a car using that French. So they're using very old, archaic words but, as she pointed out, they're preserving the French language from yes. the 1600s. So it's fascinating. It is fascinating. When you were making uh, documentaries, just like when I'm, I'm doing podcasts, there, there's a certain amount of planning that has to go into this. Right? It isn't just sitting in front of a microphone for a while, and then you close everything down and we, we send, it, send up the podcast. No, no, no. It's a lot of work. Yes. But I would imagine when you're doing video, you've got much more equipment expensive equipment, give give us kind of an overview of what producing a documentary is like. Well, it is very, very involved. Like another film we made recently, Cycling Acadia, that took us 30 months to shoot um, and make. So I find the filming can be relatively quick. If it's a modern-day documentary, like which pretty much all of Cycling Acadia was set in the modern day, but... When you're doing historical stuff, you have to do such a lot of research. And we always make sure, long before we ever take a camera out of a case, we bring on board a scholar, someone who is steeped in that history. For mm. example, if we're making films about people in the Swedish colony here, we made yes. one called um, Old Main Swedish Farms. We went around and filmed and recorded the last of the Swedish speakers in Main Swedish Colony we brought on board Dan Olson, a Scandinavian scholar. He taught Scandinavian studies at University of Chicago for years. And he lives right here in New Sweden. And so we brought him on board to help us to ensure the you know, intellectual integrity of the piece. 
For our Acadian films, we bring on our Acadian scholar, uh, Don Sear, who helps us. But it's very important when you're doing these projects to have somebody who can really help you, because you can do all the research in the world, but you know you want somebody who can check all these facts and make sure it's all correct. Yes. And even can speak Swedish, like Dan did, to help do the interviews in Swedish, or Don Sear, who can speak French and can help. Right. So... Um, in the way of, in, in terms of the filming, that is much quicker, but in terms of the edit, it's the editing that really takes a long time. It takes hours it and does. hours. And it, it always shocks people, but, and it even shocks me. 90% of what we film ends up on the cutting room floor. You mm. only use 10%. You're picking out the very best shots. But you have to start, once you do all your filming, you have a very good feeling then of, how the film could be structured. And I always say my, my great-grandmother made quilts. I make films. It's yeah. very similar. You mm -hmm. have to have you're planning out the panels, how many they will be, what, how you're going to arrange them. That's like the scenes in the film. Then you have to go into each scene. You have to then cut all these shots, select out what is needed to make the shots. But you have to, in a film, also alter it so that it's, there are waves peaks and troughs, so sometimes it's a sad moving film, and then you move on, and then it's something funny, yeah. or it's an indoor shot scene, and then you move to an outdoor scene. You're trying to alter and change and have contrast throughout to keep the film moving, to keep it interesting and exciting. Right. And of course, with movies, you have to have a lot of movement. I mean, that's how movies got their name, because they move. That's right. <laughs> and so you have to have lots of action and movement in the shots, and even when you're showing interviews, you have to have a lot of B-roll, cutting away to interesting uh, stuff that illustrates what that person's talking about. You have to have all kinds of that uh, that sort of footage. Mm -hmm. So that's why you end up shooting such a lot, uh, because you're not just having your, your A-roll stuff, but you've got all kinds of B-roll as well. Yep. And of course, with any scene, you have to start with the big picture. You start with the big wide shot, because it's almost like you're taking somebody with you and you're showing them what you got to see. Right. So first you'd want to show somebody the big picture. Where is this located? What's all around here? And then you move in. As you're moving in on the story, you're going from a really extreme wide shot, and you're moving in down to maybe a very close close-up of something as you tell your story. So, And then you back off again as the story evolves. So there's a lot in it. Um, and then, of course, it involves music and sound effects and script and narration or interviews so you have multi multi layers of stuff that you're working with and it all has to be pulled together in a way that the audience is totally oblivious to the fact that it's even been edited you want it to just uh, you know them to naturally That's absorb right. it without any interruptions of um, from the editing process and of course it doesn't mean there's no glitches or or extraneous strange noise. If you, if you hear a dog barking in the middle of a shot and you can't eliminate the barking, you have to get a cutaway of that barking dog and just drop that in there somewhere. <laughs> so they think, oh, that's the dog that's barking. Okay. So that people aren't disturbed by something or it's perplexing them. Why have they got this barking dog? At, you know, like if we were shooting this now and a loon suddenly starts warbling on the lake, if we were, this was being shot as a film, we'd have to do a cutaway of the loon. So that would be a nice cutaway. It would be. It would be a nice cutaway. All right. You have quite a few 
I would call them documentaries in, in video form available. I, I, I look at your website and I see that um, sometimes they come in a combination package for purchasing, like a, a, a current calendar and, and the video. But there's also uh, another way to see your videos besides purchasing them. Is this correct? Oh, yes. Some of them we have online. You can just watch them on Vimeo. Uh, we have some of them. We have um, uh, Cycling Acadia on Vimeo, and we have others on Vimeo. But uh, there's another one we made, Christmas Greetings from Rustic. That one's on there. Oh, that would be very nice. Oh, that was the funnest film. And, you know, it's really hilarious because um, they've been showing that on main PBS for almost 20 years. Every I hmm. always think this year... Surely they're not going to show it again. Oh, it's but a it, tradition. It is a tradition, and families gather around to watch it, and it's such a fun film. It shows all the unique ways we celebrate Christmas in far northern Maine. It is the most non-commercialized Christmas you'll ever see. There's nothing about opening presents. It's all about family and feasting and church services and stuff and singing and all the fun things we do, outdoor fun sliding and sleigh rides, you know, with a horse-drawn sleigh. Um, it's only 30 minutes long or 24 minutes long because it's a half-hour show, but um, it's a really fun film, and uh, we had a blast making it. We had a lot of challenges, though, because can you believe that this is probably one of the only places in the country you could be guaranteed of a white Christmas? They always say, if you want a white Christmas, Cable Maine's the place to go. Yes. But not that year. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Here we are shooting Christmas greetings from Rustic and there's no snow. What are the chances of that? Well, I shouldn't tell you this, but we shot the sleigh ride scenes in March. By then we had enough snow. All right. But we had our merrymakers wearing Santa Claus hats to make it look Christmassy. Sure. And the sleigh bells were on the horses. Um, but uh, it, it was a challenge that year. And other times it was so bitterly cold while filming, like, a Christmas parade and all, with all these homemade floats. They were so cute. That is so exciting that you're able to make something like that, even even though you had to do some filming outside of the month that you were planning. The art of editing creates that illusion. Well, Brenda, you and I have had a nice talk about your experiences and the products that you make, the productions video productions that are available for people who want to check them out. Where, do, where can they go? Crownofmainproductions.com Yes, crownofmainproductions.com Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this time with you. You're very welcome. It's been a lot of fun. Well, audience, we had a good time in this episode. And please tell your friends about where we talk art, especially if they are interested in the arts and culture. And we all need more of that. More art, more culture. Until next time, my friends, be well. Thanks for listening to the Partnership for the Arts talk show. 